is first from Jeremiah's prophecy, chapter 25, uh, beginning at verse 12, reading through verse 26, Jeremiah 25, 12 to 26. Let's give our attention to God's inspired and infallible word. Jeremiah 25, verse 12. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. I will bring up that land, or rather bring upon that land, all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings will make slaves of them, uh, make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord had sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and its kings and its princes to make them a ruin, a horror, a hissing, and a curse, as it is to this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all his people, and all of the foreign people, all the kings of the land of Uz, and the kings of the land of the Philistines, even Ascalon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, And all the sons of Adam, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastlands which are beyond the sea, and Dadan, Tema, Buzz, all those who cut the corners of their hair, all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the foreign people who dwell in the desert, and all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of Media, and all the kings of the north, near and far, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the earth which are on the face of the ground, and the kingdom of Sheshach shall drink after them. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 13 is our text. Revelation 14, beginning at verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. 
another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Lord our God, we pray that you would incline our hearts toward your testimony, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things in your law, that you would uh, grant us fear, O God, unite our hearts to fear your name, that you would send out the light and the truth of your word, that you would accompany the sending out of your word with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the unction of the Spirit, both in its preaching and hearing, that you might lead us, O Lord, into all of your truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The visions of uh, Revelation 12 and 13 presented us with a triad of uh, evil enemies that the church faces, the dragon, the sea beast, the land beast, begging the question whether God's people will survive uh, such an all-out attack on the church. John's prophecy uh, has made it clear that these three figures in chapters 12 and 13, representing Satan, the Roman Empire, and the false prophets of Judaism are relentless, and that the conflict, uh, this, this conflict with the, the demonized state and uh, the false witness of impure religion, requires faithfulness to death on the part of believers in Christ. 
closing section of this fourth major division of Revelation here in chapter 14 addresses the concerns and the fears that this, these truths uh, bring to the hearts of believing readers, providing reasons for the church's victory uh, over her enemies. This trio of uh, enemies is formidable. It's hostile and may even seem invincible from a human point of view. But the revelation of the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast is followed immediately by visions of victory and judgment in the heavens. Revelation 14 contains three visions. The vision of the Lamb on Mount Zion, verses 1 to 5. The vision of the three angels in verses 6 to 13. And the vision of the Son of Man in the harvest in verses 14 to 20. These three visions are both encouraging and sobering. Encouraging because they ensure us that Christ is already reigning. And the church is reigning with Christ, and therefore we have the assurance of victory. But they also warn us of the coming judgment. And so they draw a sharp distinction between those who follow the Lamb on the one hand and those who follow the beast on the other who follow the beast into hell's destruction itself. The purpose of chapter 14's vision of visions from heaven is to show that the powers of the heavens are mightier than Satan and his demonized agents. So we look at these, uh, this um, second vision here uh, in chapter 14, verses 6 through 13, uh, and we see messages from three angels. The first uh, message, uh, the eternal gospel, is preached. The second message, the fall of Babylon. Uh, the third message, a warning against worshiping the beast. In the first place, John sees an angel flying in midheaven. He's preaching the eternal gospel, the message of the eternal gospel. He's flying in midheaven. Midheaven is the sphere, remember, from which the eagle uh, cried uh, the, the woes, woe. Woe, woe, he says, chapter 8, to those who dwell on the land because of the remaining blasts of the, of the a trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. After the fourth trumpet comes these, uh, rather after the, uh, yes, after the fourth trumpet come three more trump, uh, trumpets who sound these three woes to 
uh, the land. And that's the sphere, the sphere from which this, uh, this angel uh, preaches the gospel. The preaching of the eternal gospel then uh, is the same realm in which uh, eternal judgment is preached. And that tells us something about the gospel preaching, the, the coming judgment here in verse 7 is part and parcel of the proclamation of the eternal gospel in verse 6. It's called the uh, eternal gospel because it's declared of old as the blessed hope of God's people of old through the prophets. We heard uh, in chapter 10 of uh, verse 7 of the, uh, the mystery of the gospel in the days of the, the voice of the seventh angel who was about to sound, the mystery of the gospel is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Uh, and so uh, that which was, uh, remember, mystery in, uh, uh, in uh, the New Testament uh, does not refer to uh, that which is hidden, but that which is, has been revealed and uh, and so uh, the prophets uh, pr- uh, preached in shadows uh, the gospel of Christ, the eternal gospel of Christ. And uh, the, as, as that gospel came to fruition in Christ, then Christ himself and his apostles preached the eternal, the, the finished mystery of the, the eternal gospel. The gospel was, uh, Paul says, Colossians 1.23, was preached in all creation under heaven. And its saving truths are the, uh, the comfort and the joy of the church throughout all uh, its ages. Now, contrary to some uh, interpreters, there's no reason to, to suppose that this eternal gospel is a different gospel than the gospel of the New Testament, the, the gospel that the New Testament proclaims, that, that it so often speaks about. Uh, this eternal gospel is, uh, whether in the New Testament or here in the angel's proclamation, is a message of the coming kingdom. As John the Baptist and Jesus had announced from the very beginning, Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, after John had been taken into, a cust- into custody, Jesus came into, Gal- into Galilee preaching the kingdom of God, And saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus declared to his disciples in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verse 15, which we considered not that long ago, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world for a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come, we said in the context of that 24th chapter of Matthew's gospel, that the end that Jesus refers here 
is not the last day, not uh, the, the, uh, the, the day that Jesus comes again in judgment, but rather the end of the ceremonial system because of the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Every element that, uh, of this, the angels preaching here in verse 7 is an aspect of the New Testament gospel message. Fear God, he preaches. Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Give glory to him. The angel goes on to preach. Uh, Matthew 5.16 tells us that we are a light to the world as Christians and tells us, let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Because the hour of his judgment has come. John often uh, takes these words from the lips of Jesus, remember. Uh, My hour has come, my hour has not come, he will say. But then he will say, Uh, The hour has come, uh, the hour of his suffering. And now the angel preaches uh, that the hour of God's judgment has come. And then uh, finally, worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. How often do the scriptures call upon us? How often uh, both old and new Uh, But as we're thinking of these elements of the eternal gospel that are uh, elements of the New Testament gospel, how often in the New Testament are we reminded uh, that God is uh, the great creator and that we're to worship him as our creator? All of this bears striking resemblance to what we find in the the gospel as as it's outlined for us in the New Testament and the apostolic gospel, the gospel that the apostles preached as well. And so the gospel that we proclaim, whether it's in preaching or in the testimony that we bear to others concerning Christ, is to include this element of judgment. Judgment is a part of the gospel. Some some people, even some Christians, don't like to think about judgment as uh, being a component of gospel preaching. But the warning of judgment is indeed a component of the eternal gospel. Notice verse 6, the angel preaches the, the eternal gospel to those who dwell 
uh, our translations uh, tell us, in the, uh, on the earth, uh, we can translate this, those who dwell in the land. I think it's better translated, those who dwell in the land. Uh, the usual, uh, rather, those who sit over uh, the land. Uh, those who, here, here it's translated, those who dwell in the land, better translated, those who sit over uh, the land. That's a legitimate translation of, of this expression here in verse 6. Uh, the usual expression for the Israelite, Israelite apostates is those who dwell in the land. Uh, chapter 13 and uh, verse 8, for example, all who dwell in the land or on the land will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb of God who has been slain. And then in uh, chapter 17 uh, and verse 8, the beast that you saw and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to the destruction and those who dwell on the land uh, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is and will come. Was and is not, rather, and will come. So those who dwell on the land refers to the apostate, uh, to apostate Judaism. Those who sit over the land are the religious leaders of the land. In chapter 14, then, in verse 6, the, the attention is focused on the message to the authorities of Israel who are seated or enthroned over the land. The same verb is, uh, that's used uh, in, chapter, here ch- in chapter 14 and verse 14, the Son of Man is seated or enthroned on the cloud. The gospel message commanded to the rulers of Israel, you uh, remember, the rulers of, of Palestine, to submit to the lordship of Christ was rejected. They rejected Christ. They rejected the Messiah. They refused to honor him, to worship him, rather than worshiping Caesar as God. But the rulers... Uh, and authorities said, we will not have this man rule over us. Luke chapter 19 and verse 14. Now, remember the gospel order. The, the, this first angel is uh, preaching the eternal gospel, which is the same as the New Testament gospel. And remember the gospel order to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. That's the pattern we have uh, in Paul 
if uh, you have uh, been reading recently through the book of Acts, that, that's what you, uh, in, in uh, McShane, if you're using McShane's reading calendar, that's what you've seen of, of Paul's gospel. Uh, he says, uh, when he's rejected by the Jews, he, what's the first thing he does? He goes to the synagogues and he preaches the gospel of Christ and the resurrection of Christ in the synagogues. And when he's rejected, then he says, all right, from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And then you remember that passage, uh, that uh, crucial passage in um, Romans chapter 1. Uh, verse 16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So what's the, uh, that, that's exactly the, the pattern that we find here. Uh, the, the angel preaches the gospel, and the sequence is to... Uh, the rulers, the, the, the false prophet of Israel, the rulers over uh, the land of Israel, and then to all the nations, those who sit over the land and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, verse 6 says. In spite of uh, these attempts of the dragon and his two beasts to thwart the progress of the gospel, Revelation is telling us encouragingly that the mission of the apostles, evangelists, martyrs, confessors of Christ in the early church was successful. The, the gospel uh, was indeed preached to all the world, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, uh, or rather uh, Colossians one twenty three and Romans 10.18, before the end came, before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, the gospel was preached to the whole world. The world was evangelized. The message of the eternal gospel cannot be stopped and will not be stopped. That's the great encouragement. Even in the midst of the judgment that's being preached in this first message. The second message concerns the fall of Babylon. Another angel, a second one, follows. In verse 8, presenting another aspect of the early church's proclamation. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This is the first mention of Babylon in Revelation, in anticipation of the full exposition of, that's coming in uh, chapters 17 and 18. This is similar to the early mention of the beast from the abyss in chapter 11, verse 7, before John sees the beast 
of the sea rising out of the sea in chapter 13 and verse 1. Babylon is depicted in the Old Testament, uh, even as we read today in Jeremiah 25, as the proud oppressor of God's people, uh, the insolent persecutor, full of abominable idolatries and all kinds of wickedness. And because of this, many commentators believe that the reference to Babylon here in verse 8 is symbolic of Rome. Probably most commentators hold uh, that Babylon in Revelation is symbolic of the Roman Empire. But the primary thrust of the prophecy has been directed to Jerusalem. The primary focus of the prophecy is on first century Judaism. And as we'll see in chapter 17 and 18, when we get there, Lord willing, the evidence that Babylon represents Jerusalem in Revelation is overwhelming. The term uh, that is used of the apostate city, uh, uh, the term rather Babylon is used of the apostate city just as in uh, chapter 11, verse 8, Sodom and Egypt are used to describe the great city where the Lord was crucified. John's reason for applying this imagery of Babylon to Jerusalem is that Jerusalem has become like Babylon. Jerusalem has become a proud oppressor of God's people. And that's why the fall of uh, Jerusalem is coming. The language here, fallen fallen as Babylon is taken from uh, that passage, uh, passages both in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Isaiah 21, 19, Jeremiah 51, 7 to 8, and is to be understood here as a, a doom of decree. It's announced here as though it has already happened. It's announced with a prophetic assurance as if 80, 70 has already happened. Jerusalem has already been destroyed. Uh, The temple has already been destroyed. Just as Jesus said there in Matthew 24, 14, that the end, that is Jerusalem's destruction and the destruction of the temple, would come after the gospel has been preached to all nations. So here in Revelation, the fall of Babylon the Great, verse 8, follows the proclamation of the eternal gospel, verses 6 and 7. Babylon the Great, or the Great City, as Jerusalem is called in chapter 11 and verse 8, the angel goes on to proclaim, has made all of the nations drink the wine of the passion, or this could be translated the wrath, of her immorality. The Greek 
A word here translated passion or wrath refers either to the godlessness with which apostate Israel as a harlot ensnared the nations, brought them under God's wrath by her immorality, or the way as a harlot she's inflamed them to lustful passions. I tend to lead toward the latter. Uh, that this is the picture of uh, Jerusalem as the great harlot, Israel as uh, uh, the great harlot. But either way, first century Israel has abused her privileged position as the divinely ordained guide to the blind and light to those in darkness, as Paul uh, writes in Romans 2 and verse 19. The nations were looking to Israel for instruction, but they ended up blaspheming the name of God because of her wickedness, Paul writes in Romans 2, verse 24. Like the beast from the land, uh, the, the, the false prophet who speaks like a dragon, Babylon's primary op- op- occupation, Jerusalem's, primary occupation is seducing others into immorality or fornication. And that's, uh, remember, uh, the kind of uh, language that uh, the Old Testament uses to speak of Israel's harlotry, Israel's infidelity toward God in worshiping the idols of the nations around them. We've seen the the angel's first message in the eternal preaching of the gospel. We've seen uh, the angel's second message, the second angel's uh, message in uh, the fall of Babylon, and now the third message, the third angel preaches a warning against worshiping the beast. Another angel, a third one, John writes in verse 9, follows the first two with a message of doom for anyone who worships the beast and his image or receives the mark on his forehead or upon his hand. Remember that in chapter 13, verses 12 to 17, that the great offense of the land beast, apostate Israel's religious leadership, was the promotion and the enforcement of the worship of the beast, the sea beast, the Roman Empire, and its emperor. The third angel then gives us another clue to the great city's identity by repeating the land beast's resume from chapter 13, verses 11 to 17. Immediately after the second angel's proclamation of the fall of Babylon, the work of the land beast that we saw described in 
uh, chapter 13 and verse 12 was to enforce the worship of the sea beast upon uh, the land, that is Israel, the land of Israel and those who dwell in it. Now the third angel sounds a word of warning that anyone from all the nations who participates in this worship must necessarily come under the fearful judgment of God as surely as Babylon did and as surely as Jerusalem would come under God's judgment in AD 70. These, uh, verse 10 says, will drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength. Uh, literally, mixed, unmixed. Uh, or uh, without mixture, full strength, or without mixture, in the cup of his anger. So you've got a cup of, we've got two cups here. You have a cup of wine, uh, of God's wrath, and you have another cup mixed with his anger, that, that contains his anger. And uh, the angel is proclaiming, that those who worship the beast, those who engage in the false worship of idols, will drink from both these cups of God's wrath and anger. So the warning is clear. You can't drink of one without drinking from the other. Now this expression, drink from the wine of the wrath of God, is taken from the language of the prophets in Isaiah 51 for example, verse 17 and the passage we read this morning, uh, Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and 16, as well as in the Psalms, Psalm 78, 75, verse 8. And this figure to drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is uh, mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, the, the, the cup of God's wrath poured into the cup of his, ang- of his anger is, uh, it suggests to us the, the most intense fury of God that we can possibly imagine. Like a cup of 200 proof liquor containing 100% alcohol undiluted without any mixture whatsoever which cannot be safely drunk by anyone. Third angel goes on to declare here in uh, verses 10 and 11, that those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. So the imagery of this eternal doom that the third angel is proclaiming is taken from the utter destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire and brimstone. Uh, When Genesis 19 verse 28 tells us the smoke of the land ascended 
like the smoke of a furnace. Two important theological applications here. First, note carefully in verse 10 the expression, in the presence of the Lamb. This great judgment, uh, this wrath of God being poured out into uh, the cup of his anger, this torment with fire and brimstone uh, is in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So much then for the ancient heresy of Marcionism and its false dichotomy between the gentle and loving Christ of the New Testament and the wrathful God of the Old Testament, which, of course, lives on today in the teaching of the church. I'm quite sure that you as I have heard people say this. Jesus is a Savior who's loving God. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. Second, the doctrinal significance of this passage should not be overlooked as it bears on the question of the duration of the punishment of the wicked in hell. Now, there are theologians today who promote uh, the doctrine of annihilationism. That is the idea uh, that uh, the wicked will be destroyed completely so that they won't suffer eternity in hell. There are those in the evangelical church today who are preaching this message that the destruction in hell that the Bible speaks of, the the eternal torment in hell that the scripture proclaims uh, is indeed not an eternal destruction, but rather that those who reject Christ are destroyed completely at their death, and that that is their punishment, their uh, eternal punishment. But our passage gives no uh, indicator uh, of limitation whatsoever. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Uh, This could be translated ages of ages. Uh, This is is eternal destruction uh, in hell. And those who deny the the doctrine of, of eternal destruction in hell are simply fooling themselves into believing something that's more palatable to the mind of modern interpreters. There's also a grim contrast here. Uh, In verse 11, the worshipers of the beast 
and those who receive his mark have no rest day and night from their torments. These words are repeated from the description of the cherubim in chapter 4 and verse 8, who have no rest day and night from their eternal sacrifice of praise. By now, hopefully you're familiar with the language that we find here in verse 12, the here is formula, uh, which uh, we've already seen in chapter 13 and, and verse 10 uh, and 18 will appear again in chapter 17 and verse 9, and which identifies the response that ought to come forth from the truth that precedes it. And here in verse 12, uh, John uses this formula, verse 12 of our text. And what John is essentially saying when he, when he, when he uses the here is formula, he's saying uh, essentially this, what's needed here uh, is this. What's needed in this situation is, he says, the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. God's people are not to fear as they consider the message that precedes the here is. They're not to fear eternal punishment. They're not to fear uh, the, the, the great judgment that is coming, that will indeed come. Uh, upon all the face of the earth when Christ comes again as the great judge, the righteous judge. They're rather to fear God. They are to fear of the Lord. They are to give Him glory. They're to worship Him as their creator and redeemer, even as we're admonished to do here by the first angel's message. Perseverance in these things is necessarily bound up in the fact Verse 12 says that the saints keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Verse 13 contains the second of the seven Beatitudes of Revelation. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. This comes as a most encouraging word immediately after this grim admonition of hell's destruction in chapter 14, verses 9 to 12. By the work of Christ, heaven has been opened up to God's people. Death is no longer an enemy to be feared, but is... Now the entrance into the communion of glory with our Father and His Christ, Jesus Christ, and with all 
the departed saints who are with him in glory now. The vision of uh, this third angel concludes with a word from the third person of the Trinity. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. So again, here's another contrast between what we read of those uh, in hell who have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image, and those in heaven who rest from all their labors because their deeds follow with them. The persevering saints then are encouraged to continue their faithfulness to God, not to grow weary in serving the Lord, however difficult that becomes because of persecution, because of the role that they have as as officers in the church of Jesus Christ, because of uh, the, the burdens that fall on members of the church of Christ as they live out their lives before a watching world. They're, they're, not to, uh, they're not to lose heart, but they are to uh, persevere because their eternal rest is coming. And so is their reward. Biblical perseverance is determined by the rewards of eternity and not the tribulation of the moment. Biblical hope transcends the battle that we face here on earth as believers in Jesus Christ. This vision of the three angels has application both for unbelievers and for believers. To the believer, uh, the unbeliever rather, you must understand that the cup of God's wrathful judgment is upon you and you will drink it unless you make peace with the one who sits on the throne in heaven. The only way to make make peace with God, the Bible tells us, is through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 1, after that marvelous, wondrous, glorious exposition of the doctrine of justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul writes in Romans, uh, uh, writes that in Romans 5.1 as uh, an encouragement to all who who have been justified by faith in Christ, which which simply means that our sins have been forgiven. Uh, That we, uh, that that the one who believes in Christ uh, has Christ's Uh, righteous satisfaction of the law, his righteous obedience imputed to them, reckoned to them 
credited to their account so that they stand before God in the righteousness of Christ and not in their own right because they have placed their trust in Christ and Christ alone. The scripture clearly tells us that the only way, uh, that that's the only way uh, to peace with God. And it clearly tells us it's the only way that we can follow the admonition that the first angel gives us in his message of the eternal gospel in verse 7. We cannot fear God as we ought to fear God. We can't bring glory to God. Uh, We can't even please God in any way apart from faith uh, in Jesus Christ. And uh, we cannot worship him as the creator, apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And we will not escape the coming judgment unless we put our faith and trust in Christ for our salvation. But the vision of the three angels with their proclamation of judgment for those uh, who worship the beast is also intended as a warning to believers. When you look at the, uh, the warnings uh, that the Bible gives you concerning judgment, you ought not look at those warnings fearfully if you truly belong to Christ. Uh, there, for example, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 10, there are some very stern Uh, uh, terrifying uh, things written about those who fall under uh, the the wrath of God. But these are not not designed to make Christians uh, fear God's punishment. They're to make us fear Him. They're to make us fear Him all the more and want all the more to give God glory and all the more to do what he's called us to do uh, in worshiping him with all of our being. Making it our, our main lo- our goal in life to glorify God in all that we think, in all that we say, and in, in all that we do. And so we ought to be asking ourselves, as we consider this warning in verse 7, three questions. By the Spirit's help, do you fear God as you ought to fear God? For the believer, that means the fear of offending God by our sin. Such fear is rooted in the the conviction that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Fearing God means submitting to him through Jesus Christ. Submitting to his will for you in all things. By the Spirit's help, are you giving glory to God? God's goal. In this world is to manifest his glory 
He does that in many ways. He does that through, through uh, his work as creator. As people see the wondrous works that God has created in the world, those works give him honor and glory. But he also does it through his people. He does it specially through his people. When they let their lights shine before men in such a way that they see the believer's good works and glorify the believer's father who is in heaven. And finally, by the Spirit's power, are you worshiping God? Are you engaging in the sincere worship of God? Worship is the heartfelt. Remember Jesus said he's seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. In truth, as God has commanded us to worship him, and also with our hearts, worship him. Worship is uh, the heartfelt response of a creature in the presence of the creator. The most fundamental act of worship is acknowledging God as the maker of heaven and earth. As the redeemed of the Lord, we are given the duty and the privilege and therefore that which ought to be our great delight of offering to our Creator and our Redeemer a sacrifice of praise that is well-pleasing in His sight. As we come to him through Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Our Father, you know us certainly better than anyone else knows us, and certainly better than we ourselves know ourselves. And you know how often we fail to fear you as we ought, how often we fail to give you glory as we ought, how often we fail to worship you as we ought, as the creator and redeemer. Forgive our sins, O God. You also know us because you have planted the spirit in our hearts and have worked in us to sanctify us, you know that it's our desire to fear you and give you glory and to worship you in a way that pleases you and not to be lazy in our praise, our worship of the Most High God of heaven and earth. So help us, O God. Help us to heed the warning that's before us in this text and grant that we might do that which uh, is pleasing in your sight. Through Jesus, our, our Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.